again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, science fiction, gaming, fantasy, all things nerd and geek, and other stuff. And a reminder, yes, the Olympics have passed. However, the Paralympics are coming. And you're, we're going to be your Paralympic rainbow connection here at OutSports. August 24th when the games start in Tokyo, and OutSports will cover them like a blanket. In the news this week, the New York Times delved into the entire transports issue with an article that ran August 12th, article by noted Times writer Lindsey Krauss, also fronted a well-put-together video essay spoken to the words of Andy Taylor. Now, Taylor is a 48-year-old transgender woman who is a competitive distance runner who lives in Minnesota. And they had a few things to say. One of the things they were quoted as saying was, I'm not a cheater but I may have an unfair advantage. Now, what came after in the reactions in the comment sections, Twitter, other social media, was a lot of kudos for the article and Taylor's views being, quote, honest and staking out the, quote, middle ground. And one commenter went as far as saying that this article and this video, quote, humanizes trans athletes. Or... The way I see it, it humanizes trans athletes as long as they're speaking through a cisgender lens for largely cisgender media and cisgender people. Now, don't take that necessarily as being critical of the person who is the subject of this article. Andy Taylor's life experience is not a point of contention, but some of the claims can be looked at more than once. One was a claim she levels that she is faster compared to other women she runs against, even as she's gone through phases of transition. Now, that doesn't necessarily jive with another article written on her a couple years ago, which showed that the times weren't as fast, that there was a drop-off and may not necessarily be an advantage. The article itself was quoted as saying that Taylor, quote, finds herself staking out a more nuanced position somewhere in the, quote, apolitical middle ground. Now, like I said, not critical of the subject, but I am critical of the way the New York Times has gone about this particular reportage. And by the way, links to the article and the video will be on our Twitter page and our Facebook page. But here's some of the criticisms I have of it. First, the concept of quote-unquote both sides are quote political. Now first let's talk about both sides. There may be two sides to the issue but I think that people misname those sides to, to put it best. Really the sides are exclusion versus inclusion but too often the mainstream press which largely looks at these issues through a cisgender lens immediately defaults to trans people for and against, as if the existence of trans people is the issue. And in my case, being a trans person who is an athlete, my existence is not a quote-unquote debate. I exist, I compete, and 
I get a lot of joy from competing, and once in a rare while, I might just win a little something, something. But most of the time, the trans joy for me is in competing well. Now, one thing that we have to point out as far as political is let's really get real about who's getting political. Because a lot of people say, like, there's the extremist on both sides. And yeah, they're right in the case of those who are like the Alliance Defending Freedom, who have basically built a coordinated assault on trans people, trans youth especially. And they target transgender kids who just want to represent their school in a ball field and affirming health care for transgender youth. That is what they're targeting here. And make no mistake, the assault is coordinated, and that's been proven time and time again. It's basically a couple pieces of legislation that have been copied and pasted in state legislatures across this country. But it's also the additional part of the reporting here that it's always about either the trans tragedy or the trans debate. And it seems that those who play up the quote-unquote controversy and debate and all the downsides, and I'm going to say it, the ugliness, they're the people who are getting most of the microphone time. You know, Barry Deutsch, one of my favorite cartoonists, writes a very important cartoon about this, and I'm going to post it. And it essentially shows three transgender people walking in a park and talking. And one talks about how great his transition is. And another talks about how great her transition has been and how it's changed their life. And there's a third person who talks about, well, the transition experience for her has largely been miserable. And out of nowhere comes a stampede of reporters, print, me print media, radio reporters, broadcasters, and they're all going towards that person who said that her transition has been difficult and miserable. And they're all sticking out their recorders and saying, can I get an interview? No, me first. Hey, will you write an op-ed column for us? That has been in many ways the lingua franca of the reporting that we've seen. That the negative and the harsh views and those that affirm certain, I'm going to say it, cisgender sensibilities those are the things being centered, be it this issue or a couple months ago when you had 60 Minutes do a feature on affirming health care. And at first, for the first minute or two, they talked about, you know, the issues surrounding health care and the, and the bills that are looking to ban affirming health care and then spend the next eight or nine or more minutes of the piece talking to detransitioners. And yes, that's an issue that should be discussed, but it dominated the discussion. How about also covering the trans joy with the same intensity that it seems that the trans debate and the trans tragedy gets discovered? Because for myself, I find a lot of trans joy just by towing a starting line.
I think of athletes like uh, Juniper Simonis, who says unabashedly, yes, I'm trans. Yes, I compete. And yes, I am a multi-time world champion in roller derby. And I make no apologies for saying it. It is the continuing narrative that we're okay with trans people playing and trans women especially playing as long as you lose. Hashtag just saying. Now let's have a little trans sports joy. And we got some courtesy of someone I've become a fan of who's a friend of the podcast. Haley Davidson, 28-year-old Floridian, three-time winner on the National Women's Golf Association circuit this season, is currently in California for stage one of LPGAQ school. Now this is a dream and a goal she's been working for for the last five years. Her ambition is to be the first transgender woman to earn an LPGA tour card. And the first step starts Thursday with the first of hopefully four rounds here at this first stage of Q School. For Davidson, this is a next step in a comeback journey that she talked to this podcast about back in May. Let's listen a little bit. Back then, I honestly thought it was it was golf or being who I am. Uh, I didn't. There was no crossroad. It was one or the other. I've had up until a few weeks ago, it was close to six years off from competitive golf, and like I said, it was just over two full years off of touching a club completely before coming back. And I was, you know, I just was playing at a club my parents lived off of in a retirement community for the first couple of years, just trying to figure out how the heck to play golf again. I never even knew I would get good enough to where I would think of competing again. Um, I never really knew it was a possibility. Um, but funny enough, I, w I still called the LPGA and I still was, you know, asking them, okay, how, you know, is this possible down the road? So even though I was not playing golf at all, golf was not a part of my life at that point. You know, I wouldn't even watch golf on TV with my dad because it would just remind me of this thing I'm missing out on. And I was so lucky the LPGA put me in contact with, with Bobby Lancaster. And I remember that first phone call I had with Bobby. Um, it gave me hope that this is like an actual possibility. And I tell Bobby this all the time, you know, as much as, um, you know, she'll leave me just these great voicemails and, and notes when we talk, you know, the one thing I always remind her and, you know, even though she didn't make it out on tour, um, you know, I personally don't think I'd be able to do this or even would have thought it'd be a possibility without what Bobby did. She, even though she may have not have made it as a, as a player, she still went out there and she still challenged these things. And, and the reason I was able to even start these conversations to begin with, with the LPJ was because of what she had originally done. Now, if you want to hear the full interview, the link will be provided on our Twitter page and our Facebook page. I encourage you to check it out. It was a deep probing interview and Haley had a lot to say. Now, what are the stakes of what she's entering into starting on Thursday? Essentially, the first stage of Q school is like a LPGA weekend. It is 72 holes and it will be done in this fashion. 18 holes will be at Rancho Mirage out in California 
on both the Dinosaur Tournament course and the Pete Dye Tournament course. Then there's another 18 holes to play over at Shadow Ridge. Now after those 54 holes, there will be a cut. And the field will be cut down. Should Haley survive that? 18 more holes on the last round on the Dinosaur course. And from there, if she's in the top 60, including the ties, the next stop is stage two of Q School in Florida a few months from now. And if she survives that, it'll be on to the Q Series in late November, early December. And from there, if she finishes high enough, she's going to be on the LPGA Tour in 2022. From all of us at the Transporter Room and Outsports, Haley, go get them. Yours truly was on Canadian television last weekend. Thanks, CTV News Channel. I was on as part of a panel interview talking about the LGBTQ surge at the Olympics and how that can be fueled to foster further inclusion in sport. I had a chance to talk about it alongside a sports hero in Canada. 1992 Olympic gold medalist in swimming, Mark Tewksbury. It was an honor to exchange ideas with a VP of the Canadian Olympic Committee, who himself is out loud and proud. Here's a little sample of what we talked about. Mark, first, do you feel that you're on more equal ground? 100%. Okay. In fact, we have to work much more uh, consciously on bringing more Indigenous communities mm -hmm. into sport, to bringing new Canadians into sport, to bringing members of other Black communities into sport, and, 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 and you know, all kinds of different groups that need to be represented better. I think we've done an excellent job on the 2S LGBTQ plus side because of Sochi in 2014. Mm -hmm. We shone a light on it. We did the same with gender before. And these things can be sort of focused, and I don't want to say cyclical, but you sort of can, can approach one at a time. And it sets a bit of a framework. So yeah. same issue, same way with trans issues. I think it's incredible. Yes, there's just a few openly trans people in these Olympics, but we're having this discussion. But that's a huge start. We're having this discussion. We're celebrating. Uh, I think we can rightly say that the two of you are celebrating what has been accomplished so far. Carly, Mark made a really interesting point here. Um, we seem to be cyclical or particular groups are, are, are seeing breakthroughs. When we open it up now, um, if I can ask you, when we're to opening up to the BIPOC community, including the LGBTQ plus 2S community, when do you feel we can see it as a whole versus bisection? Are you hoping to? Uh, well, first and foremost about celebration. I was celebrating during the Olympics, but right now, Celebration ended for me when that Olympic flame was extinguished because mm -hmm. we still have a lot of issues on both our respective countries. And I will say this, the United States has a lot to learn from Canada. Mm -hmm. We have a lot to learn in inclusion from Canada because right now, whereas inclusion in many ways, while it's not perfect, is codified in Canada, we're still fighting over it in the United States. Right now, there is a, there's an act called the Equality Act, which is currently sitting blocked around Capitol Hill at the moment that desperately needs to be passed that will finally extend full civil rights to, uh, to include LGBTQ Americans truly for the first time in history codified. We need that done. That's mm -hmm. the next breakthrough. Now, if you'd like to hear even more, we got it coming on the other side of the break. Yes, you're hearing that noise. Mark Tewksbury will beam up after we give some love to our sponsors. I'm Carly Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us.
And our guest this week, got to say I'm honored to have this guest this week because we get, it's rare we get champions. And we have a guest today who is not just a champion in the arena sport, but they're extending that championship to matters outside to make sports better in terms of inclusion, in terms of human rights. Joining us is someone who's well known to many of us these days even more. Mark Tewksbury is the vice president of the Canadian Olympic Committee, a well-known voice for inclusion in sports, LGBT inclusion, inclusion across racial lines, and has been outspoken in sports as a vehicle for human rights. But before Mark was all that, Mark did this. Here comes Mark Tewksbury to the final five meters. Rose and Tewksbury, it's gonna go to the wall and on the wall. That's right. Nasty in the pool. Gold medal winner, Barcelona, 100-meter backstroke, 1992. In addition to four Commonwealth Games golds in individual and relay events, this man was fierce in the pool and became fierce out of it by coming into his own truth and coming out. And in many ways, he was a catalyst to what we saw in this past Olympics here in Tokyo with over 185 out and proud athletes, 32 medals won. So let's not waste any more time. Let's beam him up. Energize. Woo! Hi, Carly. Hey, Mark. It is, <laughs> like I said, it is an honor. Notice the background behind me. <laughs> I see that. I think I have a beard. I, so I look a little <laughs> That's a. <laughs> now, one thing about, one thing I've noticed is we're close to each other in age. Oh, are we? Okay, We're, yeah, I just turned You're looking 50. good. Thank you. I just turned 50. Dang you. Dang you. I mean, I remember I was in college when that when that occurred in Barcelona. I remember I remember that race. Oh, I wonder, thank you. For you, I want to go back there real quick. First thought, when your hand hit the timing pad and you looked up at the scoreboard and saw Tewksbury CAN one next to it, what was yeah. that moment like for you? Well, you know, I remember it was so weird because Jeff Rouse, the swimmer from the U.S., and I were like so close, so six one hundredths apart. And I remember looking to the scoreboard, and it took a moment, and I didn't see the number one, but I saw my last name, and it blinked, and it was the first name to blink on the scoreboard, and I was like, "Oh my God, I know what that means! I won this race!" And then I, before I could stop, I was like on the lane rope and. Ah! <laughs> and it, the rest is just kind of a foggy memory. What was it like coming home and realizing? What was it like coming home and realizing Peter Mansbridge knows what my name is now? Yeah, he's the what big was that anchor. like? He's like our Dan Rather, or you know, um, it was amazing. You know, it actually hit me on the plane ride home because I, I was put on the cover of Time Magazine in Canada on the Canadian version, and I remember opening. They they upgraded me to business class, and in those days, all the magazines had a a generic folder over tops. So you couldn't see them. And then I, I opened it. I was like, it was me on the cover of Time magazine. So that was a really good indicator of like, oh boy, this is different than what I thought. Because when you win, you know, at the Olympics, you're in this bubble. And in those days, of course, not like this year where you had to leave right away because of the pandemic, you could stay. And so I would go to athletics every day and enjoy watching track and field. And even then, it took about four or five days. I remember being in a medal ceremony at athletics 
and something, a flag went up and I started to cry and I realized, oh my God, that happened to me. So it, it's a little bit of, it takes some time for it to soak in. And that, uh, that, that Time Magazine cover is a great precursor to like, okay, things are going to be different. <laughs> now, let's fast forward to these Olympics. 24 medals won by Canadians. One You're of the such fast a great sport reporter. I just love how you know so much about Canada. Okay, 24, keep going. 24 medals won total. The one of the fastest men in the world, Andre de Grasse, Marco Ontario. Yeah. The greatest athlete in the world, decathlete Damian Warner. Amazing. Also Canadian. Yeah. You had gold in many, you had medal. Gold winners. in the pool. Even. Yes, we don't we usually some, do that. You had, some except, gold, yeah. you had some gold in the pool. One of the best swimmers in the world. Penny yeah, Alexia, Canadian, Penny yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you have, it was all over the place. There was maple leaf everywhere. And of course, and I know I'm going to, I'm going to take off a few Americans with this, but <laughs> women's soccer, they said, Bev Pressman said from the beginning, we have to change the color of the medal. That's one heck of a change, isn't it? That's a great Gold. upgrade. We'll, we'll take the upgrade. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, you raised some really good points because there's, all kinds of fabulous human interest stories out of these Olympics. And that's really important for an Olympic committee because it, it keeps the sponsors engaged. It keeps the public engaged. And we like to feel like the Canadian Olympic team sort of has a bit of the pulse of the country, you know, that we represent who we are. And we're so different than the United States. God bless you guys. You have such depth and you win so many medals. For us, 24 is huge. That's the most we've won in many, many Olympics. And like I said, great stories behind them. Penny Alexiak, so she became the winningest Canadian Olympian ever with seven medals over two games. I know that's child's play for you guys. That's like one haul for no, Michael that, Phelps. That's, that's like one Olympic. But Mark, that's not child's play for anybody. It takes a lot to win one. Seven Olympic it, medals. It's I mean, true. It's true. It's true. You know, but, it's extraordinary. But also another thing I look at is all the, I mean, 16 out Canadians participating yeah. in the games. and. Yeah. As someone who, in some ways, had to had to like be in that closet for a time, and kind of like you know, kind of feel the way, and and had to come to that area where you had to era where you had to feel your way through. Yeah. What was it like for you to see not just not just to see out athletes in general, but particularly out athletes wearing that red and white who were yeah. out and open and competing and winning. Yeah. And even like, listen, for me, it was a full circle because uh, eight different sports had out athletes in Canada from skateboarding to soccer to swimming. Um, but what was really cool was the swimmer was Marcus Thornmeyer. He's a backstroker like I was. And so it really was a, a generational aha, proud papa, legacy, bow, all in once, you know, kind of made it feel really worthwhile that in 1998 I came out and also made me realize like, you know, in 1992 when I won, it was too early. Like I sometimes look back and say, why didn't I come out at the press conference? And I wasn't ready. The world wasn't ready. You know, it just wasn't the right time, but it's so great. These Olympics have been really a, a watershed moment. And, and as we've talked about, lots to go still, but we're just going to take a moment to celebrate 185 athletes, 32 medals, Team LGBTQ became a thing. It wasn't just us talking about Team LGBT. It was like the mainstream press, which is also huge in roads. Now, I know on your own podcast, on your own, when you talked about how 
people were did it kind of blow your mind a little bit that people were actually calling up Outsport saying, uh, you forgot me? Exactly. Yes. On my queer queries. Thank you for promoting my little YouTube thing, yeah. queer queries. The questions sometimes even gay people don't know the answers to. I love it. I mean, outing yourself, right? That was like, I, I, I laughed because in my day it was like, oh no, I'm, I'm not gay. I'm, I don't even know what gay means. <laughs> and now people are like, please include me. And that again says just speaks volumes. And and congratulations to Outsports for making that happen, for having a place where people know where to go and to feel safe and to want to be part of this community. Well, in the, well, in some ways, Mark, you are part of that. Yeah, for I'm sure. Gonna, we all, you know, Sid and I were kind of the same time, like that same era, and and sort of breaking through this traditional model of what sports was and sports reporting was. So yeah, thanks for that. Well, one thing I remember, give me a juxtaposition and kind of a contrast of where we were. 1998, because I remember watching the National that night and hearing you come out and hearing that press conference of you coming out. I mean, for you, what's that, what's that contrast like to then when it was that, when it was some when it was like wow the gold medalist comes out and this is national news to now it's like wow all these people are out and at one level it's still news but mm -hmm. at another level a lot of people are saying like well what did you expect they're going to play why not yeah yeah we're getting there i mean i think what's interesting is there's still firsts and firsts are part of history and and they will slow down, but like we just had our first you know, NHL, NFL, and of course, Quinn, first transgender, non-binary gold medal at the Olympics. Like incredible, first transgender woman, Laurel Hubbard, competing in weightlifting. So these all get news, and as they should. I do believe we're at a bit of a tipping point, and I think in three or four years, these won't be news stories anymore. It will be accepted that there's a, 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 a significant population in international sport that is part of the lgbtq plus community and that's just the reality but boy back in my day it was like sports hero declares he's gay on the front page of our national paper and that was the first time i've ever been in the country when i've been on a headline usually i'm overseas it's for a world record or something like that what i didn't realize is when you're a human interest story you are fodder for every call-in radio show across <laughs> the country for the day and so it just took on this life of its own carly and i had to have a press conference three days after i did the original interviews just because it didn't stop you know it the momentum kept going and it was funny there was this juxtaposition um that on one hand there were 10 cameras. Everyone wanted to be there. On the other hand, everyone kept saying, why are we talking about this? Why do we, you know, so like it's, we want to be we here. We still get that here. now. We still did. I couldn't believe the reaction to some of the, the you know, asking me about um, the first NHL player, Luke, coming out. Is, is this still news? It's like, I can't believe that line is still being used 23 years later. Not, that's Canada's national game we're talking about. I know. How important is Luke Prokop <laughs> to the well, to the bigger cause? How important is now? Granted, he is a prospect. Exactly. He's not in the NHL yet. He's and the first if, NHL contracted, right? So yes. at least he's under contract. But one thing that I mean, I'll tell you, the thought of well, one thing that struck me is how much support there's been 
how much positive support there's been because you asked this 10 years ago. Uh, that would be akin to maybe Gary. Be that'd be a, the chances of positive support be like Gary Bettman getting cheers when he's giving out the Stanley Cup. <laughs> that, but but there's all this, and that's another thing. I I've called this year inclusion summer in a lot of ways because you saw Carl Nassib and you saw Luke Prokop and you've seen this Olympics. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Also, I wanna I wanna get your take on this, Quinn. Yeah, how important was Quinn? Not just the sport, but especially to Canadian sport. That that well, what I happened. like about it, you know, I think Quinn very um, purposefully focused on task at hand. There wasn't a really huge deal made out of the, the first transgender athlete competing. It was, it was a, it was there, but it wasn't. Didn't take away any spotlight from the team. Really focused on performance, and I think it was just beautifully done. And nothing speaks better than the results, right? And and then you really get to stand proud and hugely important and representative um, in so many different ways, as we talked oh, about. Oh, oh, right. And you and I were on CTV a few days ago, actually talking about this. And and one thing I'd said then that struck me about Quint was. First, I had to make sure I woke up for that match, the opening match against Japan. And the, and the first thing, when I saw them run on the field, when I saw number five, and by the way, special thanks to the friend of the podcast from Canada who told me about where I can get a jersey, because I'm, I'm definitely ordering one. Awesome. When they hit the field in that match, I, was, I could feel myself tearing up being trans and being an athlete and seeing and having the chance to interview Quinn last year, seeing all that, that made me tear up. But then the tears turned into a smile, just, just seeing them get after it and yeah. get after it for the entire tournament. I mean, also how much does that factor in that? Like you said, not only were they there, they, and not only were all these athletes there, you saw them compete hard, and you and and a few of them you saw them win. How yeah. big, how important is that for for especially for our Rainbow family who are still dealing with so much out here to see yeah. not only just being sportsmanship but also seeing championship. Yeah, well, I love it. I mean, what's interesting is sport can be a double-edged sword. For some people, it can be just a horrible experience and one of exclusion. And I think back to all many of our uh, high school gym days or junior high gym <laughs> class, right? We're all slightly all traumatized. And yet at the same time, sport can be this incredible vehicle for inclusion and visibility and representation. And so that we saw all the great stuff. And I think right now, trans issues for me are, are really... I feel like we're, we were a little bit with the LNG rights maybe 25, 30 years ago, where we were really in the front and pushing and activism. And I feel like trans issues are finally getting that same air, but it's really tough. Like a lot of the news you hear is people are so discriminatory and so afraid and acting from that place of fear and making law. And so I think that the trans community really deserved to have a fabulous great news story and an excellent role model. Now, with that in mind, as a member of Canada's Olympic Committee, looking past Tokyo towards Beijing in 22, Paris 24, what are some of the priorities that you're seeing from your position? 
Well, as an Olympic committee, I mean, of course, performance is always very important. And so uh, that's the number one raison d'etre for us. The second raison d'etre is to promote Olympism in Canada. And so we're really going to push hard for sport to be more accessible to all Canadians. We're going to do a big campaign for that. Um, we're really very consciously outreaching to our uh, Indigenous community that has perhaps not been as representative as it, as it needs to be at the tables of power, but also in participation in sport. Um, we've got a really excellent new Canadian. We've got really uh, solid immigration uh, programs in Canada. So we have to outreach to new Canadians and just keep growing that funnel. We're only a country of 35 million. So it's really important that we get as many people active as we can. And I know that post pandemic, it's tough. A lot of programs took big hits across the country. And so we've got to make sure that enrollment comes back so that they can generate the revenues they need to keep the programs alive. So lots of stuff on the plate for sure. Um, I will also personally be very interested in the trans issue going forward. And I see that the International Skating Union just came out with some policy on you know, what they're thinking of how to handle these issues. I'm curious, have you had a chance to see that yet, Carly, with the I've, international I've, I've looked community? a little bit at, I've looked, a, I've looked at some of it. I've been kind of keeping the pulse on it. What but, do you think? Like, I, I'm curious, what are some of the most common misinformation points that get out there about particularly transgender women competing in sport? Number one, that there is this massive advantage. And mm -hmm. as we as we've seen conclusively in Olympic competition and where we've seen in collegiate competition as well, there is not. But that also goes into what I think is an even larger myth is that there's no regulation for it. And there's it's not like transgender women just show up. Yeah. And it's like they have you just can't through. show up. And and I'm a competitive athlete. I'm a multi eventer So I'm a duathlete, triathlete. And to compete, for example, in our national championship or in anyone's national championship, like, for example, if I was competing in a sanctioned Triathlon Canada event, I would still, I would have to undergo the same IOC WADA guidelines that any elite athlete would. It's the same thing with USAT here in the States to compete in a national championship because World AIDS group bids are given out at those events. I'm I'm subject to the same elite regulations. I'm I'm subject to the same number of nanomoles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Believe me, USAT knows as much as my doctors do about me. So that those are those are the biggest things. And also, U Sports has the U Sports in Canada, NCAA United States both have regulations. I think that's the that is the really the biggest myth that there's no regulation on it, and that's not that's very much not true. There's you know what I heard really? Yeah, for for sure there is. I know that side. And what I, I thought was really intriguing, I had a good conversation with another transgender woman who said, you know, the whole argument is coming from this idea that all women are created equal anyway. Like, the, the, so the whole premise is completely, we said we come in all shapes and sizes. We always have and we always will. So this sort of unfair advantage is just flawed from the very beginning. Well, I... I am, I like the fact that one thing I will say I like that the fact that the IOC is is looking at the policy it is looking at the policy I, I one thing I'd like to see end is the caster semenya rule I'd like to see that end because I think that it is a needless and very discriminatory policy I think at one level it can be it, it is very discriminatory towards the nations of the global south 
one level, but I also think that could be used on, but that could hit anybody that could hit mm-hmm. any, that could, I mean, I, that could hit that swimmer in Manitoba that could hit the, that could hit the distance runner who lives in Texas. This, this policy could hit anybody who's, who's the only, the only breach was the way they were born and the way that they developed as a human being. I mean, I think we need, we need more study. We need more humanity involved. And we need to realize that no two human beings come into this world the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, listen, the basic problem is the world has evolved so incredibly from a non-binary model and sport is rooted in that. And so how do you adapt this binary model to a much more fluid non-binary world? And, and that's what sport's having to deal with. And to your point, at least the IOC has this issue on its radar. And you can imagine how much it tried not to have this issue on its radar because sport doesn't like to deal with these really difficult issues. But we have to. And, and I, I agree with you. It's, it's good that it's happening. Well, one thing, your voice has been instrumental in dealing with those with those issues. I mean, one of the things you've really talked about a great deal is human rights. What are some of the where are some of the places you feel, for example, the IOC, who you've been very critical of? What are some of the priorities you'd like to see not just the IOC, but all national governing bodies look at as we head towards 22, 24, 26, 28 and 32? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it's pretty hard to wholeheartedly without acknowledging the enormous human right challenges, et cetera, in Beijing, like to be going to a country like China right now, right? It's, it's just, it's difficult to, to justify that. And I, I try to put the onus, everyone says there's talks of boycott in the States and Canada, which no, that is not gonna solve anything. That's not gonna help unless you wanna stop all business and all political relations mm-hmm. do not make the athletes be the pawn in that game because it doesn't work. But so if I understand time, you right, no, you would if if a group of Canadian athletes who said we want to boycott Beijing, or if a prime minister says we're considering a boycott, you would tell them don't do that. I would absolutely tell them do, don't do that, and I don't think any athletes would do that. I think athletes have the right to express their concern for the human rights situation in the country, but they can only do that with the spotlight on them while competing. So I think you know it actually furthers the the attention by being there and showing up and and standing for what you believe in. I am happy to say that the International Olympic Committee saw that their process was deeply flawed. That somehow to end up with know a couple of of final cities that were both undesirable why would you put yourself in that position and so the process going forward it's why you've seen uh, Paris and LA we've already got basically a 2032 summer city in Brisbane named before we've even got a 2030 winter because they're just saying hey if you've got a reasonable solid bid and it's a desirable country, then then we're going to take it very seriously. So I think there's been some improvements made. But again, I think that all of us have have an onus in this, that where do we send our championships? Where do we send our tournaments? What financial gain do we give to these places that really potentially don't deserve it based on their how they uphold the values of Olympism, which includes human rights? Now, one thing, if I if I understand correctly, your hometown said no to another bite of the apple hosting the Olympics. How did you just, feel about that? You got some good research going here. <laughs> um, I was very disappointed, um, but it was it was understandable uh, just from the very beginning. 
the the train left the station without a vision. The train left the station counting money and you know bean counting. And man, like you're never going to build a building or a bridge or Olympics if you're just going to look at the finance and you don't have that vision of gee, building this bridge will create commerce. Da, da, da. You know, like there was never that compelling reason. And unfortunately, um, it, it just got so mixed up. People were thinking, well, the money that isn't being used to, I've got a pothole in my alley and that isn't being fixed. We shouldn't host the Olympics. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, these are, they're not related, right? But it just got sort of really mixed up. So it's very disappointing. Huge wake up call to the Olympic Committee to see that Olympism, um, it needs some love and some nourishment in this country. We can't just assume that people are on the Olympic bandwagon at all. Now, I want to give a, a quick shout out to a city that could use some summer Olympic love. I will put my hat in the ring as a person who wants to see this in 2036. I want to see the 2036 Summer Olympics in Toronto. How about it? <laughs> Toronto's been passed up, what, three times? I want to see if perhaps one of my favorite cities in North America get the games. Well, I think you're going to have to wait a little longer than 2036, but your vision it has some merit and there's some big talk about it and there's some excitement about Canada bidding for summer Olympics in the future. Um, but let's see what happens. We've got to get through the next 2030. It's got to be decided. Uh, 2036 is going to be so difficult because there hasn't been an open games to bid on now for, for you know, if Brisbane's locked up for 2032, there's so many incredible places in the world from the Middle East to Africa to South America that would also be interested in 2036. So we may sit that one out and let people you know, lick their wounds <laughs> and come back in for, for later games. But for sure, it's on our radar. Now, we're, we're talking about 2036. I know there's at least one date on the minds of about 35 million Canadians, and that's September 20th. Because <laughs> yes. that's what bumped us. That's what bumped us back like 15, 20 minutes on CTV last weekend was you've got a snap election coming up. Yes. And there's a, there's going to be a lot of talk about things such as COVID and budget, all the financial and the economic matters of and because Canada being set up as it is. You fund sports. You fund culture. It is a part of the. It is a part of your government. It's a part of your cabinet. What is the? What is a couple of things you'd want to tell, Mr. Trudeau, Mr. O'Toole, or Mr. Singh, as far as where you feel the priorities as far as sport and culture should be for the next government, whoever it is. Well, thankfully, this is easy because we've had a, a government relations campaign for the past year and a half or so, really, for the most part, to try to raise uh, basic funding for the national sport organizations in the country that really deliver the sport on the front lines day in and day out across the country via the provinces. So that's one of our number one priorities. I just noticed... Um, England, Great Britain has just invested equivalent of about 50 million Canadian dollars into their um, Olympic Committee in developing their athletes for the next two games. And I think that's a great precedent to kind of also piggyback on and say to our government, if we want to keep seeing performance and Canadians love the Olympics and love watching Team Canada's success, then we've got to start to pay a little bit more for it because we're going to be simply overspent and, and outmaneuvered if we don't keep ourselves in the game. Also, how does diversity play into that? Because again, 
I mean, there were Canadians of all hues and all stripes. Yeah. Who are not only competing. Who are not only competing. How much of that, I mean, how much of that will do would do you want it to see it as a priority going forward? And how do you get those on board who may not see it? Because they're I mean, Canadian society is fighting a lot of these issues, especially when it comes to BIPOC, when it comes inclusion, when it comes to immigrants. Yeah. You still you have very similar fissures up there that we Americans have seen down here. How do yeah. you build how in the sense do you keep that at the top of the priority list and push people who may not see it as a priority and get them to understand having another building more Damian Warners is good for Canada? Yeah. Um, well, so, I mean, first of all, we've been very purposeful and conscious as an Olympic committee um, to, to change our makeup, so to lead by example. But I'm, I'm happy to say the reason I didn't mention it before is because that became a mandate of the current government. And I'm hoping whatever government continues, that inclusion, especially of Indigenous peoples in this country, we're facing a, a reckoning of our past, a brutal, brutal past. And so funding has been sort of contingent on making sure that people of Indigenous backgrounds, of BIPOC backgrounds are included. And so that's been wonderful to see that linked to policy. And I hope that keeps going forward, whatever government comes into power. Looking at this Olympics, but also looking back at the road you've trod, do you get the feeling that at, t at some point during these Olympics and, and also seeing the, cause I noticed the gleam in your eye when you said that on your YouTube cast about 185, I noticed that little bit of gleam. How have you, did you catch yourself once in a while saying, I'm glad I finally came out and I helped. I had a hand in help building this. Yeah, listen, I've been, I've received more than my lion's share of accolades and, and, you know, for being brave back in the day. It was, if I could swear, it's a effing hard. You can you know go ahead. I mean? No, you it can go ahead. It was fucking hard. It was fucking hard. It was like, it was not a fun decision. It was not easy to talk about my private life publicly in 1998. Um, there was just beginning to be will and grace. Um, you know, Alanis Morissette her, had her album that revealed her soul. And I would never know at that time that I kind of was part of that kismet, you know, of that collective psyche, whereby revealing things about myself that were very personal at that time would get such a bounce that like 20 years from now, I would be seen as something because of that moment. And so it's quite incredible to have had that experience. And, and for sure, listen, I've watched as... Um, there's a book out called Proud to Play, and it's a story of 10 LGBTQ plus athletes and coaches and participants story for kids, for, for teachers to use across the country as a resource. And I'm the first story in the book because I was the first <laughs> out. And so that was like a little proud papa moment. These Olympics and Marcus Thornmeyer and Quint, like that was a proud papa moment. And then um, my medals. So I've got my three Olympic medals and they're reunited with my little Speedo that I wore in 1992 <laughs> at the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame, which is in Red Deer, Alberta, like town of a hundred thousand. I don't mean, not, you know, not maybe that's all. I've been really. to Red Deer. See, yeah, that's, it, a, that's another <laughs> thing. Gay a, Alberta. Yeah, yeah gay Alberta, oh, small a, town a lot, Alberta. To right? a lot of, yeah. To a lot and, of people, those two, uh, we're talking Ralph Klein, Deborah Gray, yeah, Preston Manning, it. Alberta, 
You got but, it. You're so well informed. Again, I mean, but but so my gay but even speedo there, is, but even yeah. there, you've seen a lot of change in the provincial government. I mean, for example, well, look, trans look. rights were were passed all over the place in the last couple of years in Alberta. How? There's some hope. And Carly, like, so that those medals in that bathing suit are on exhibit at a 2S LGBTQ plus sport museum in Alberta. Like, so <laughs> that just like blows my mind. It so does. I do feel like, um, I guess it must be how parents feel at their kid's wedding. You know, just this sense of, okay, like I did my job. The, the next generation is off and running. And that's honestly how I feel right now. It's a pretty nice feeling at 53 years old, I have to admit. It's kind of a real legacy moment. Well, being 50, I'm right there with you because I never <laughs> thought it I never thought there'd be a I never thought there'd be a pathway. And a transporter only, room. Like who yeah, knew the transporter I mean, room? But I never thought there'd be a pathway to not only just come out, but also keep playing. Yeah. And in many ways now. And participating, right? Like, that's the other thing. So we're not just historical and now here. You're in the game. I'm a vice president. I'm a chef de mission, the head of the Olympic team. Like, that is progress, right? That we're, we're, we just wanted to participate, right? That's what basic yeah. human rights is. Just let us bring our talent to the table. Don't exclude me because of one aspect of myself. Sid Ziegler says this often. It's a lot easier to perform when you're not keeping a secret. For you, what was it like for you to perform in Barcelona knowing that, because I, if I understand it right, you were out to your coach. Yeah, you were one out coach. Yeah, not my traditional coach, but my sort of specialty coach, right. an amazing woman. But the point is, you had the, at the point when you were on that starting block in Barcelona, to, the mo to at least to the most important people in your world at that moment, you weren't hiding anymore. Yeah, at least one person. That's my boyfriend. That's my partner that just walked out. That was perfect. Not hiding anymore. <laughs> um, you know what? I, the thing was, and I love this as an example, just having one ally, one person to kind of clear the path, share all this shit. I'd hear a homophobic comment. I'd call Debbie and say, ah, and then it's out. And I think the difference was two things. In the ready room, that's where we marshal before you go out for the race and you're there for 30 minutes with your seven competitors. In that moment, because of, of how my, my specialty coach, Debbie Muir, was able to change how I looked at myself, my liability being gay became like my superpower. So I thought, what makes me different? I'm the fag. Ah, the only <laughs> new. So wow, you, yeah. you went and there. You went, I went there. there. I went there. And then on the starting block, I had no thought. I just had performed. And I think that's the magic. I didn't, I wasn't thinking of other things because I was able to focus on the job at hand, which is, I think, all any of us want. Back to that idea of just being able to be in the game and participate and be our okay. best. Well, one thing you said in, the, in that national interview three years ago is like, when, when you were fired from that six-figure gig and they were told you were too gay, yeah. that instead of retrenching, you said, no, I'm going to double down. Yeah, I'm not getting enough, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> but now you're, we're in a place in sport where there is no such thing anymore. I mean, I look at the athletes that not only just came out, but came out and showed it. Like somebody like like discus thrower for the United States, Raven Saunders. Yeah. Who, by the way, you have an open invitation to get on this show. 
who, <laughs> who not only was out, but owned it. And that's another thing. Oh. Like Quinn owns, they own yeah. it. Yeah. And I that mean, was the greatest thing to see. Just Tom Daly did it. Tom, became oh, Tom Daly. <laughs> Tom Daly just, oh, I mean, let's talk about Tom for a quick second. Tom just all the way owned it. Yeah. Tom just owned And by the way, Tom, can I get, Tom, I want a cardigan. He <laughs> did a but, damn good job, I have to say. Yeah, but, uh, but but you know what's cool? It's the opposite now. So like, uh, I think out athletes are being rewarded for their authenticity, their courage, all these things that are really attractive to brands in the world. They now see the light. I'll tell you, that's something. Like like <laughs> Sid like Sid says often, it's easier to perform when you're not keeping the secret. And totally. it's no secret that it's good that we have your voice. And Mark, I, w- I want to put a little challenge to you. Okay. I want to put a little challenge to you because first I want you back here. <laughs> At some point I want you back. And secondly, we Americans need your voice. Okay. We need your voice down here. We, we need your voice. There's 36 states right now that are, that are dealing with a lot of this, especially anti-trans regulation. We need to, we need to hear... From I'm going to do a clear queries. I'm going to do clear queries on trans issues, and I'm going to reach out to you, Carly, to make sure I get it right because I only get three and a half. Minutes I'll, I'll tell you right now. I'll come on it with you. I would come okay. on it with you to talk because, and it's not just, uh, and it's not just the United States. There's 36 states here that have anti-trans legislation. I've seen the news stories up in Canada. Uh, for example, I remember a couple of years ago there was a gym, there was a group of LGBTQ people who just wanted a place to work out, and they started a gym in Edmonton, and they got harassed so much they had to close it. There's there's the situation of like there's attacks on trans people in the Maritimes. There were some on the streets of Toronto. There's the there's the situation with there's a continuing situation with Toronto Pride. There's still a lot that needs to be dealt with in both our countries and also around the world and also around the world and not just in the usual suspects. Like we talk about Iran and we talk about Russia and we talk about China, but let's talk about Hungary. Yeah. Let's talk about the urban regime in Hungary. Let's also talk about the LGBTQ plus free zones in places like Poland. We have a world and, and also right here, in the United States, like I said, Mark, we have a law called the Equality Act down here. We need as much global pressure on our politicians down here, too. With, like you said, the reckoning with the past that's going on up there. I'm lending my voice to that because that same reckoning that's happening with indigenous people up there has got to happen down here. That truth and reconciliation must happen. So I'm asking you, please. You be a voice for be a voice for all of North America because North America needs to hear it. Thanks, Carly. I'll see you soon. I'll see you as well. I'm gonna beam you back down, energize Mark. <laughs> thank you for being with us today. And Thanks, Carly. Thank all of you for being a part of the transporter room. And if you have something you want to see or something you want to say about what we're doing, please leave a message on our Twitter page, leave it on our Facebook page, email us, continue to read OutSports, and and, and don't forget, OutSports is your, is your Paralympic rainbow connection, Paralympics starting next week, 
23 at this point we have we know of 23 out paralympians who will be competing in tokyo starting on the on september on august 24th and we're going to cover that wall to wall like a blanket covering our rainbow our rainbow champions giving it their best so we will be your rainbow olympic connection but if you like we say hey if you like what we're doing leave a message because everything i do at the transporter room i do it for you the people who support us that's the transporter room for this week i'm carly chardonnay webb live long and prosper steady as she goes i'll see you next week <laughs>